Hi folks, Mikey Robbins here. Now, while Paul and I are fine-tuning the next season, yep. Paul, Paul's down in the shed right now with the <laughs> with the ratchet set, we're going to run some classic episodes. And this one, well, it's one of my favourites. It's about a travesty in theatre history. The centuries when King Lear was a rom-com. Hi everyone, and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd. But my mate Paul Wilson... Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the (laughs) cock-ups. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Folks, today we're going to look at a howler, but it's a bit different, mate. That's right, because it, well, it's not really a person, well, is yeah. it? Although it involves a person, yeah. it involves a king and the bar. It involves Shakespeare, but it's not the old, you know, the old boring Shakespeare. Did he write it? Is it Oxford? That kind of thing. No, what we're talking about, we're talking about a howler of a play, and it becomes one of the greatest travesties in the whole history of Western theatre. Okay, now before we get into it. I'll put out my own personal theory here. I think yeah. you agree with me, mate. It's okay to muck around with the bar. Yeah, sure. I mean, I mean there are yeah. great, great adaptations. That's you right. Know, people often mention, you know, Kurosawa. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah and uh, Rashomon. Yeah, Rashomon. Yeah, yeah. And, and, also, and look, I'm going to be a bit controversial here. I actually like Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Well, yeah, exactly. You know, I think it's, everyone's got a right as a director to uh, to play around a little bit. Look at Hamlet. You know, unless you've got four hours to exactly. kill, you're going to cut the odd scene, aren't you? You've got to tighten it down. There's a few that perhaps they yeah. should, shouldn't have bothered, Mr. Oh. Worthington. Yeah. Well, yeah, I shouldn't <laughs> mention the Australian version of Macbeth or the Scottish play. Right, but, yeah, what we're saying... And we're not being purists here. It's okay. Yeah. To, it's okay to adapt and, and you know do stuff with Shakespeare, right? Which brings me to our curtain raiser because yeah. people know you as a historian, but you've yeah. also read your fair amount of, of English lit. Yeah, done my English lit. Yeah, I've written a play. And comedy's being modest. You actually wrote a play about Shakespeare. Yeah, maybe yeah, we'll talk about that later. Oh, no. But we, but, uh, but what's your favourite? My favourite Shakespeare play. Yeah. Well, a bit controversial as well. My favourite is actually Twelfth Night, Mike. Not one of the big ones, mate. No, well, it's uh, it's yeah, it's pretty big, and as oh, yeah, yeah, comedies I, I, go, um, no, but, you know, it's, and it's a comedy, and it is a comedy. But what I think's interesting, the reason why I particularly like it, is because it could be played two ways, which is what we're saying here about messing around with the virgins. I, I don't think you're messing around by playing Twelfth Night as a Dark, um, yeah. you know, playing fest day as the melancholy fool rather than the the knockabout clown. You yeah, know? Um, and I think that's really important because yeah, you know, certainly with you know, going back to Greek drama, you've got to have the highs with the lows. You need to have the comedy to make the drama. You need the drama to make the comedy. You know, just you know, commedia dell'arte, that kind of well, thing. Well, you, I, you've I, got to stretch the canvas. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned commedia dell'arte because you can definitely see the influence of commedia dell'arte in Twelfth Night. In Twelfth Night and, and the role of the fool. That's right. And also, to I've got to pat you on the back because well, you know, we talk about mucking around with Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. If it hadn't been for Twelfth Night, we wouldn't have had these classic teen films. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. Oh, dear, yeah. She's the Man, 2005 <laughs> yeah. film starring Channing Tatum and Amanda Burns. That's true. She dresses up as a twin. Dressing up, yeah. They had to play soccer. Has the unforgettable line, 1-800-BH, <laughs> which I don't think is Ooh. classic Shakespeare. Oh, dear, no. There's no. 2001's Disney's Motocrossed. Same Motocross. plot as the last one, but dirt bikes instead of soccer. Oh, I'll give that one a miss. And, yeah, of course, on. the 1985 Just One of the Guys. Oh, Just One of the Guys, yeah. Yeah, no, that was a good one. What about you then, Mikey? What's your favourite uh, okay. Shakespeare play? Well, I'm going to go dark as dark. Right. I, I 
it's Lear. It's King Lear. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. I mean, and you talk about adaptations. The, the, well, you mentioned Kurosawa. Kurosawa's yeah, yeah. That Thousand Acres, a film with Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, that's pretty and, good. And, and that's of, currently Succession. Of course, yeah, that's yeah. why everyone's talking about it at the moment, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, succession. Yeah, it, 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 it's a brilliant play. It's very dark. Uh, and you're saying, well, hang on. Okay, well, in the beginning, well, well, you said it was a howler. So what, you're saying Lear's a howler? Or? No. No, no. You're saying, but they're saying Shakespeare's a howler? No, what I'm going to be talking about is what was done to King Lear right. by a bloke we don't often hear about. I'm talking about the version written by a guy called Nahum Tate. Nahum Tate. No, never heard of yeah, Nahum no, Tate. Okay. It's quite a unique take on it. Before all we get into that, mm. I'm, I'm going to knock on the door of your expertise again. I think we need to talk about the difference between Shakespeare as performed mm. and Shakespeare as recorded. I think this all goes back... Probably goes back to the first folio, doesn't it? Yeah, the, uh, the first complete bill, <laughs> if you like. <laughs> yeah. But of course, that didn't come out until 1623. And by then, you know, Shakespeare's died. Seven years. Yeah, he's dead 1616, right? right? So the big, big problem everyone's got with Shakespeare is you do not have any precise, accurate dates about when each play was written. Yep. And of course, or, or, or first performance. And you don't have any accurate copy of exactly what he wrote down. Yeah, everything well, else, it's, it's all, it's not hearsay, but it's, you know, they're using quartos from different areas. They've put them all together the, into the first folio, but we cannot say that that's exactly what he wrote, and we cannot say that's exactly what was performed, because, of course, you yeah, know, performances would change yeah, almost every day, Mikey. You've you got different trends, you've got different tastes, you've got the censor coming in, you know, the old master of the revels. He oh, used to you've got to cut that bit and put that bit in. It's funny because master of the revels, even though he's a censor, he sounds like a, a modern-day party player. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, master of the parties, isn't it? Yeah, But yeah, like I said before, I don't buy into this Oxford stuff. I think that, um, Shakespeare definitely wrote yeah. the plays, but I also think he definitely didn't write every word because that's the whole point. They had this company, they had the Admiral's Men on one side and then you've got the Lord Chamberlain's and the King's Men which Shakespeare belongs to and you've got some people in there like Dickie Burbage. They would have, for sure, they would have put their own lines yeah, in. And a bit of improv, that kind of thing. Let's not forget too that Shakespeare was quite often borrowing from, from stuff himself. Well, that's it. He's the first to admit, you know, he used Hall and Holland Shirley you know, for his history plays just as he used Ovid and Plutarch you know, for the classics. Uh, and <laughs> I must admit, when you talk about Borrowing ideas, Mike. Yeah. Uh, just to give the folks at home an idea of how how these <laughs> these things can happen. Yeah. Um, does this story involve a pub? Back in the nineties, it certainly does. Uh, the Goat and Boots. Uh, I, love Fulham, the name of, I love the name of the pubs you went to. The Goat Fulham, and Boots. Fulham Road. Um, I used to hang out there. Well, yeah, not on a pretty regular basis. And uh, you'd always know when Andrew Lloyd Webber had a new hit musical in town. What? Well, he'd come in for a drink. No, he wouldn't come in. But his brother. Julian, you know, the, oh, the, the cellist. The cellist, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you'd, you'd walk in, and there he'd be at the end of the bar, and he'd had a few, yeah. and he wasn't very happy. Why? And, yeah, and you say, oh, yeah, actually, he's, um, oh, I've seen the new hit play, uh, chess new musical, yeah, whatever. Chess, Phantom Cats. Phantom Cats, whatever it is. Your brother's doing well again, and, you know, Julian's like muttering, muttering, muttering. Yeah. And he goes, oh, yeah, well, he's been raiding the attic again, hasn't he? What? Yeah, well, that's what he's like. What do you mean, raiding the attic? So apparently, the story goes, yeah. uh, according to Julian, that actually their dad, what William um, Lloyd Webber, he'd written all these ideas for these great plays and musicals, but he'd never put them into production, and he stuffed them all in a box and hidden the box up in the attic. And so Julian's idea was that Andrew Lloyd Webber, where every time he was short of an idea, he would nip, nip up to the attic, open the box, and steal, steal the next story. And should I just say, before we go any further, any lawyers out there, um, Paul's just writing something he overheard in a bar. We're not stating this as fact, because you know Andrew Lloyd Webber, he is a bit suey. <laughs> 
All right, folks, so today's episode, we're looking at a real howler. We're looking at a chap called Nahum Tate, and basically what he's done to crucify some of you, the Bard's finest work. Before we get into it, mate, speaking of crucifying Shakespeare, you and I have one thing in common. Go on. We're not huge fans of the English novelist Thomas Hardy. No, that's true. I don't know about you, but I had to do Woodlanders at school, Mike. No, no, but I... I, Mayor of Casterbridge. Yeah, I did a a test. I hated it. But anyway... Here's the thing. Thomas Hardy was a, was a massive Shakespeare buff. In fact, sure. And yeah, in fact, he enough. references it quite a lot himself. Yeah. But I, I just like the story. In 1881, Go on. Thomas Hardy, he liked the folios. In fact, when he went to a play, he would read the folio rather than watch the play. All oh, right. Okay. That's one story. But in 1881, in Winborne, he and his first wife, Emma, mm. they joined the local Shakespeare Reading Society. Right. Which is sort of like a Victorian version of book club. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's in your reading group? Uh, uh, Dickens and Elliot this yeah, week. Right. Yeah, yeah. Thomas yeah. Hardy. You, you, usual suspects. And you take turns <laughs> to get up and read your so Thomas Hardy was actually in yeah. the club. Yeah. Um, yeah, but only for a short period of time. Apparently one of his novels went berserk, like went sold Big Bang Gangbusters, right. so he went to London. But this, Bright lights, big city, yeah. yeah. Left but, Wessex behind. Yeah, but no one no one on Winbourne cared. In fact, they were ecstatic. What? This is one quote of someone who was in the book, in the reading club right. with uh, Hardy. He was leaving behind a reputation as a poor performer who put no expression into his reading. That's Thomas you, Hardy. I wow. thought you'd enjoy that. Oh, stabbing the back. Ouch. All right. Okay. So, but we're looking today, Nahum Tate, who I must admit I have never heard of. So, Mike, talk me through it. What did he do? What's, why is he the howler? Okay, okay, Tate was a pretty obscure playwright and poet. Mm. And around about 1681, mm. he reckoned he could improve King Lear. Okay, this right. is, Actually, I'm going to quote him here. He described King Lear as a heap of jewels, unstrung and unpolished, yet so dazzling in their disorder that he decided to rectify what was wanting in the regularity and probability of the tale. And this is 1681. So we're talking about, what, 60 years after Shakespeare's yeah. died. So it's been around, and he's he's been mulling it over, and he reckons, no, Lear's a bit rubbish, I can do better. Now, uh, before we get into this, a uh, quick synopsis for those of us who have not read uh, King Lear since we were in high school. For a while, yeah. Very quickly, Lear divides his kingdom between the two daughters, Goneril and Regan, and yeah. banishes the one that actually loves him, Cordelia. Yes. The famous nothing, nothing will come of nothing, nothing speech. Comes of nothing. She has nothing to give him but a love. She can't make the out of the top declarations. So she gets banished. Yes. Then the two sisters, Goneril and Regan, reject Leah. Mm. They're not so keen on having Dad turn up with his rather expensive entourage. Mm. Leah and the fool are out there in the storm. Leah goes mad. Mm. There's a bit of eye gouging. Goneril poisons Regan, then kills herself. Cordita is hanged. Leah dies of a broken heart. Top shelf tragedy. <laughs> right. But fair enough, yeah, and uh, yeah, I think there's uh, Regan and Goneril, isn't it? Um, Edgar and Edgar, Edmund come in there as well, the bastard okay. son, and some dodgy uh, extramarital shenanigans. Okay, so he looks at this Tate. He decides, you know what? I can turn Lear into feel-good rom-com with gags. <laughs> he wants to turn Lear into yeah. a rom-com. <laughs> uh, okay, okay. Um, Goneril and Regan still die, but they're they're the baddies, right? Right. Yeah. Lear and Cordelia live. Leah briefly regains the crown, but then right. gives it to Cordelia. Right. Everyone lives happily ever after. Okay. And Edgar pronounces, yeah. truth and virtue shall at last succeed. Oh, and also, too, in the new version, mm. the character of the fool, one of the greatest roles in Western theatre, sure. gone. Complete, oh, you're kidding. Completely expunged. What? Yeah. yeah. But the whole point of Leah is the, is the, fool, the fool and Gloucester on the heath. Oh, yeah, exactly. Poor Tom. Yes. Yeah. Oh. So, 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 so he turns it into, and it's, it's much shorter as well, this sort of light, bright, tragic comedy with a, you know, with, with a few gags thrown in. And hopefully it bombs, right? No. King Lear Light does not bomb. Although Tate himself in his diary said he was very nervous on opening night. Right. 
it becomes an instant hit. Wow. Okay, it was derided by the scholars. And let's face it, this is, you know, 70 years after Shakespeare's died, mm. 60, 70 years. So there are scholars about, mm. and they're a bit ticked off with it. Mm. But the general public love it. And right. so much so that that is the version of Lear you saw on stage mm. for virtually the next century and a half. Wow. In, in fact, even Samuel, Dr. Johnson, yeah, mm. Dr. Yeah, Johnson, yeah. One of the great minds of English lit. Yeah. He said he preferred the upbeat Lear. Wow. He said he, he said he always found the death of Cordelia unbearable. Right. In fact, here's a quote from Dr. Johnson. Go on. In the present case, the public has decided mm. Cordelia from the time of Tate has always retired with victory and felicity. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, but I, I can see where you're coming from there, Mikey, because, you know, what's that quote? So Dr. Johnson, you know, the public has decided. And I think, to be fair, that is an important point, isn't it? Because it is about... Bums on seats at the end of the day, well, isn't it? You know, when, yeah. and even Shakespeare himself, yeah, he, he, of course, he was a playwright, but he's also an impresario. He, he's also an actor, um, but you know, he has always seen that you know you've got to write for your crowd, and that's something all the great impresarios understood over the years. You know, from Burbage and Elaine in Shakespeare's time, right through to blokes like Garrick and Keane, and, and it was a bit of a boys' club. <laughs> It was, in fact, yeah. There was Garrick, as you mentioned, and yeah. Keen, but there were two particularly groundbreaking women actor right. managers. A woman called um, Madame Vestris, who was a opera singer, mm. an actor, mm. a manager, mm. a dramaturg, virtually. Mm. Also, too, no, 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 she was. I, I know the word dramaturg is funny, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But also, too, she. Uh, highlighted set design and costume design to a major standard that actually propelled the course of English theatre. Right. But here's my favourite. Studying under her was a woman called Laura Keane. Mm. Now, Laura Keane was an actor. In 1852, mm. she migrates to America, mm. where after a few years acting, she becomes America's first actor manager. Right. Woman, that is. So Vestris was in the UK, yeah. and now Keane's gone to America. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, in 1858, she had her biggest hit. Mm. She premiered the play Our American Cousin, mm. which, if it rings a bell, is the infamous play that Lincoln was watching when he was assassinated. Ah. And just keep that in mind. All right, okay, remember that bit, folks. But for no, so, and, and then, of course, you know, back in the UK, you've got people like Garrick. He joins the Theatre Royal, Jury Lane. Um, and by 1776, he's running the joint. And he runs the joint, yeah. And, and he wasn't above mucking around with Shakespeare as well. That's true, yeah. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, he puts in a scene just before the lovers die where they actually meet again. And oh, so, right. And so say loving things to each other. They mm. still die, mm. but he, it softens the blow. Right. And uh, Garrick did try... And with and, Lear? Yeah. Well, he tried to reinstall some original Lear, yeah. but still kept the happy ending. Still Kate, Tate's version. Yeah, he was still... Right. still wow. In, in fact, it wasn't until 1823 mm. that an actor manager was brave enough to try the original Lear. This is a guy called Keane. This is Edmund Keane, the other great Jory Lane actor manager. Yep, no relation to Laura. And so what, Edmund Keane, he says, get rid of Tate, ditch his version and go, go back to the original. Yeah. yeah, and guess what? Big London opening, no expense spared, and... It folds after about four performances. You're kidding. It couldn't get an audience. Actually, Paulie, while we're here, there was a brief time in the early part of the 19th century when Lear was banned. Banned? And this wasn't because of the Tate version. Right. 
Anyway, well, you know your English history better than I do. Okay. It's a play about an aging, possibly insane king. Why would you ah, ban King Lear? Right, so they were worried that if they put it on stage, you might be uh, referencing a certain mad King George III. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so it, yeah. It, was, it was seen too offensive. So the, the play was actually kept off the stage until George III died. Right. But in 1845, another of the great actor managers, Samuel Phelps. Phelps, yeah, I've heard of him. Finally has the courage to mount a production of the original play. The, the original, original Lear, the original Shakespeare's Shakespeare. Lear. And it is a massive success. Finally. So from 1845 on, yeah. Tate's Lear. Tate's gone. It's banished from the British stage. Right, I see. Yeah, so it just becomes like a little sort of curiosity sort of thing. Occasionally yeah. academics put it on if they've got nothing better to do. <laughs> okay, folks, so we've mixed it up a bit today and had a look at the history of theatre. And even with the howlers like... Tate's version of King Lear, we believe the Bard would always have supported new interpretations of his work, just as he himself liked to tinker over the course of his career. Talking about turning Shakespeare into plays, yep. I, I mean, you didn't direct and produce, you actually wrote and produced a play about Shakespeare. Yeah, that's true, Michael. Yeah, Shakespeare Tonight yeah, I took it over to London and Edinburgh a few years ago. And what I was trying to say there, and perhaps you know, what's poignant here, is that if you take Shakespeare's career and take him as a, you know, because we talk about these Fab Four, the, uh, the great tragedies at the end. But if you take his whole career and if you cut it down in the middle, yeah. it's very, very interesting how different the first half of his career is compared to the second half. You know, the first half, you know, if you, if you took it up to about, you know, the end of Elizabeth I's reign, and that first half would just be the comedies, you know, the, the histories, histories. Yeah. You know, which, of course, you know, great, great plays in their own right. But yeah. he would have just gone down, if he died that day, you know, he would have just gone down as a, a very good Elizabethan dramatist, you know, which he, which he was. But then the, the second half of his career, when you move into the tragedies, the complex plays, you know, what some people call the problem plays, he suddenly, you know, with those things like Hamlet, Lear, Othello, Macbeth, Tempest, you suddenly turns you into the world's greatest playwright. In fact, you know, the world's greatest writer in any language. Yeah, you know, and I think it's, it's quite interesting. I, was, I saw the other day that there was more productions of Shakespeare put on in Germany pre-COVID than there were even in the UK. You're kidding. Yeah, yeah, there you go. So, like I said, I don't buy into that idea of the Oxford and who wrote it and who didn't write it. I think Shakespeare definitely wrote them all, but I do buy into the idea that he becomes like a new writer in that second half of his career. Uh, he grows into a more complex, more nuanced writer for the precise reason that Shakespeare, the man, becomes a more complex and more nuanced individual and i think there is a reason for that i think it's a very specific reason for that because um in 1596 so right on that pivot in the middle of his career his only son dies his son was called hamnut with an n all oh, right. right okay and when he dies he's back up in stratford with shakespeare's wife and the, and the sisters um shakespeare's down in in london and from that moment when hamnut dies for the next six to 12 months and onwards, I think you see a significant change in the style of writing and the ideas that Shakespeare's trying to put across. Yeah, I think his plays become a lot darker. A lot, more com a lot more complex. A lot more complex. Yeah, of course, you've got the tragedies, but you've also got things like Twelfth Night, like Merchants of Venice. You've got these new roles of the fool. Yeah. And um, we were talking about Feste earlier on. 
But it's the dark, melancholy uh, side. It's not the slapstick. And of course, you know, look, there were different trends, as we said earlier on. And of course, you got different actors. And I think it's very important to mention that that guy, Robert Armin, becomes the big player of the fools. He replaces Will Kemp, who is more of a sort of slapstick fool, and Armin becomes the thinking man's fool. Um, I think Shakespeare writes for him specifically with characters like Feste. But I think you really can see how he changes as a human being, and I think the death of his son is, you know, instrumental. I'm glad you mentioned that the character of the fools, too, yeah. because I'm getting back to that actor-manager thing. Mm. There was a, because by the 19th century, they controlled the West End in London. Sure. And they controlled theatre in America. Yep. And there was a trend, not with all of them, but with a lot of them, to get what would be called low-comic actors. The sort to, of vaudeville. Yeah, the vaudeville actors yeah. to play the humorous roles, or yeah. the roles that are tinged with humour. Mm. Sort of like yeah, the grave diggers from Hamlet. Yeah. Imagine in Australia, it'd be like casting, actually, it's a great idea, Lane Owen Woodley. <laughs> right. Who'd be brilliant at it. Imagine Morkman Wise. Yeah, Morkman Wise. Yeah, yeah, suddenly they, turning up in the middle of Hamlet. They'd be the grave diggers. Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah, and I, I think that's it. I think your point is... Bang on, Mikey. Yeah, these actor managers, the old impresarios, at the end of the day, it's all about bums on seats. Yeah, it's about making your play a success. There's no point putting on a show if no one comes to watch it. Which brings me to my final point. Yeah. Uh, so I mentioned how in 1845 yeah. they stopped doing Tate's version in England. That's right. It keeps going in America for another 30 years. Oh, dear. In fact... The first version of Shakespeare's original King Lear mm. is performed in 1875 and the lead role is played by a guy called Edwin Booth. Right. You might have heard the name. I mentioned before about Lincoln Edwin. watching our American cousin when he was assassinated by John Wilkes oh, Booth. 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 Edwin right. Booth was the brother mm. of Lincoln's assassin who was one of the biggest names in American theatre. Wow. All right, there you go, folks. It's the end of the episode. If you've got any questions about the Bard, Lear, um, Nahum Tate. Um, yeah, indeed. History or, of Theatre, whatever you, whatever you fancy, drop or, us a line. Or just, yeah, tell us your favourite stuffed-up version of Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, maybe one you acted in in year 11. <laughs> well, but I will say there was, a, there was a cartoon called No Meow and Juliet. Ooh. <laughs> All right, okay. Okay.